So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 3 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the row in front of you. We also have scripture journals. that are these little black books out in the uh, narthex if you head out of those doors, which you can go get one if you don't have one. And they're off to the left. To give you a reminder of why we preach through books of the Bible, we, we typically do that. We typically pick a book of the Bible and we want to preach the whole thing. And that's because the Word of God is our highest authority. And I don't want to come up here and just be preaching what I read in the news or a blog that I read that I thought was good. I want to, I want to give you guys the Word, right? I want to give you the Word of God because that is our highest need. We need to hear from our Lord. And so we typically pick a book. And we work passage by passage through that, uh, that, that uh, letter. So we've been in Philippians, uh, and we're continuing through it, and we're in chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 1 through 11 uh, this morning. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy Word, His inspired Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, open our eyes to your word, to the truths therein, to Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Oh, we, as we just sang, we need you. I need you. Every hour, we need you. Reveal to us our dependence upon you this day. And shower grace upon us as we ponder the awesomeness of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you did it. You've been invited to interview for the job of your dreams. The job of your dreams. It's the job you've always wanted. The position you've daydreamed about since you were a child. Maybe it was to be the CEO of that 
of that company, CEO of Amazon. Maybe to be the quarterback of the New England Patriots. And we all know they desperately need a quarterback right now. I don't know what you've daydreamed about, the job you've always wanted, but, but you're finally about to be interviewed for it. You're nervous, but you're excited. And so you put on your best suit. If you're a man, you put on your best dress. If you're a woman, and you head into the office where you're going to be interviewed. But minutes before you head in, you get this text from the boss, and they throw you a curveball. They tell you there's a catch to the interview. In the interview, you can't present your resume. You can't present your resume. You can't present any paperwork that shows your past experience or why you're suitable for this job, your past achievements. And not only that, you can't even speak about it in the interview. You can't even speak about the things you've accomplished, the experience you have, the skills that you have that would make you the right person for the job. None of that would be allowed in the interview. Now, of course, this sounds crazy. This sounds crazy to us. Why? Because the world we live in, the world we live and breathe, is all about self-justification. It's all about proving your worth. From birth to death, we are all asked to prove ourselves, to prove our worth, to prove that we're good enough, to prove that we're worth being accepted and loved and included, simply that we're good enough, that we've earned it. And But here's the one thing you can bring to this interview. They're allowing. The only thing that you can reveal in the interview is the identity of the person who referred you and recommended you for the job. The only thing you can present is a letter of recommendation from the one person who says you should be given the job. And so everything hangs on the value and worth of that person and their word. You know, as we've been studying Philippians, perhaps you've, you've been asking yourself this question, why is Paul constantly talking about joy? Again and again, this is the refrain, rejoice, I have joy, from the very beginning of the letter. And he begins chapter 3 with the same refrain, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Remember, he's in jail, and he has this joy that is the foundation of his life. Where does this come from? Why does he have it? What's giving him so much joy? You know, he's waiting to be, um, he's waiting to hear Caesar's decision, whether or not he's going to be executed or if he's going to be freed. Why does he have joy? I'm going to put forward to you this morning that we're entering the heart of Paul's argument right here in verses 1 through 11 as to why he has joy. And it's because of this. As he's awaiting the decision of Caesar, his case before God has already been decided. As he's waiting for his case to be decided by Caesar, his case before God's already been decided. Paul is filled with joy because he is accepted and known by God based on Jesus' record of righteousness, which is applied to him by faith. So for you and I, what that means is, You can be filled with joy because you're known and accepted by God. Why? Because of Jesus' record of righteousness that's applied to you by faith. We're going to unpack that this morning. We're going to see what his argument is 
It's in three points. First, he says that he has no confidence in the flesh. And then we're going to see that he says, no righteousness of my own. That's the second major point. And then his third major point is that there is no substitute for knowing Jesus Christ. No substitute for knowing Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack each one of those points. First, no confidence in the flesh. He begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Why would he say, it's no trouble for me to be writing these things to you, but it's also safe for you? Safe from what? Why would he be saying that? Well, look what he says in verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who is he talking about? Who is he speaking about? Well, in the early church, in his day, there became this, uh, this um, faction in the church called the Circumcision Party. and they, Or he also called them the Judaizers. They were basically a group in the church that said, to be saved, to truly be saved, you do need to believe in Jesus, but you need to keep all the Old Testament law, especially circumcision, if you want to be saved. So, you know, you could imagine as the church is growing, it's growing into Gentile lands, it's going into the Greek-speaking world where people aren't circumcised, this party within the church is now saying you must be circumcised. You must hold to the food laws, to the circumcision laws. And what Paul is saying is beware of these people. They're adding to the gospel. In Galatians, he says they're preaching a different gospel than the one that I preach, which is no gospel at all. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. Why does he say mutilators of the flesh? Well, if you recall, circumcision is a matter of taking off a part of your flesh. And they're saying, he's saying they're twisting that idea so much that all they're doing, they're, they're mutilating the whole idea of circumcision. What circumcision was all about in the Old Testament was about the matter of the heart. Deuteronomy 10 and 36 and Jeremiah 4, there was this request by God to say, be circumcised in your heart. Have a new heart. Take, circumcision was this picture of the, of the sin being cut off from you, to be removed, to, to, to have your body cleansed. And it was always a matter of the heart, of believing and trusting in God's promises. And so that's why Paul says that we are the, we are the circumcision, not these people. Look at verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says we're not the ones adding to the gospel. We understand what the gospel truly teaches. Not these, group, these people, this faction. You know, it's this danger of superior theology. This idea that I've got a higher, a better path forward than just the gospel. I've got something better, a superior theology. That's what these, these uh, Judaizers were falling into. You know, new Christians especially are susceptible to being led down this path. You know, new Christians are zealous. They're on fire for Jesus, but sometimes they are led astray by thinking that they can add to their acceptability before God based upon their attempts at holiness. But that's not the point of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you can't earn this. You can't do anything to earn this righteousness. It's been earned for you. 
But why does that news make some of us angry? You ever thought in your heart, but we have earned it, didn't we? Deep in our bones, as people who've grown up in this individualistic society in the 21st century, we have this impulse to prove ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to earn a seat at the table, to say at the end of the day, I put the work in. I got myself here. Therefore, I'm going to get myself into heaven. I said this, I've said this story years ago, but uh, Michael Bloomberg, he ran for uh, president Democrat, uh, on the Democrat side years ago, Michael Bloomberg. And he gave, at one point, he gave $50 million to a, a pro-gun control push for legislation. And he was so happy about it. He was so proud of himself for that. It was a lot of money. In an interview, he was so proud of himself, he says this, kind of in a jokingly manner, but he said it nonetheless. He says, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. No, I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. It's not even close. That is the heartbeat of someone who just has has the only mentality of you have to earn your way into heaven. And he believed that he had done that. That he had done that. You know, for Paul, who's writing this letter, these are the words you know, of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit for us. You know, everything changed for Paul on the road to Damascus. We read about this in Acts chapter 9, of when he was on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians, to get them in jail, to end this Jesus movement. And there he is on the road, and, and this blinding light blinds him, takes his eyesight away, and he hears this voice, and he says, Lord, who are you? Jesus, speaking to him, says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus took his eyesight, but he opened his eyes in a much deeper, more powerful way that only Jesus could do in the might of his resurrection. You know, lost eyesight might have been a common theme for Paul. Some believe, and I think there's good evidence for it, that as Paul got older, he became near blind again. He was starting to lose his eyesight. And one of the reasons I think that is at the end of Galatians, Galatians 6, 11, he says, he signs it off by saying, you know, Galatians, see with what big letters I'm writing to you. So he would, he would often have someone else write the letter, and then he would sign his name sort of at the end. So maybe perhaps he was losing his eyesight again. You see, for a scholar like Paul to lose his eyesight, it was a present reminder for him that often our strengths, the things we're really good at, the things we take a lot of honor in, become loss in the useful service of Christ. Those things that we, we took pride in, right? he, he removes from us to keep us weak. And in our weakness, we receive strength and usefulness. In Christ. You know, I assume most of you in this room are Christians. And so you might be thinking, why do I need to hear this about Jesus and the gospel? I believe it all. Believed it ever since I was a kid. But Christians need to hear this. I need to hear this every Sunday. Perhaps you've thought in your heart, Dennis Johnson writes, God has graciously set me apart from the unclean riffraff around me. Now it's up to me to do my part. To build a solid resume 
by keeping the commandments of God and obtaining God's approval at the last day. You see, Christians can fall into that same trap. I've been saved once, but I've got to keep it. I've got to work hard. Friends, I want to tell you, don't believe a half gospel. Don't believe a half gospel that says you've been forgiven. Now don't mess it up. You've been forgiven, but don't mess it up or it's gone. You've heard of people getting rededicated, right? getting rebaptized again and again and again because they're believing a half gospel. They're believing a half gospel that says, yes, you can be forgiven in Christ, but that's it. It's up to you now. You see, we bring the only thing we have to give to God, our sin, our shame, and our guilt. And in return, so that's what we give in salvation. We give our sin, we give our guilt and our shame, but in return, God gives us two things. In Christ, he gives us forgiveness of our sin. We're made right with him, but also Jesus' resume, Jesus' righteousness. His perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience. As we said in the confession of faith this morning, so that his obedience becomes ours. We read about this so clearly in the book of Zechariah, where the great where the high priest, Joshua, is standing with this vision of him standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan comes to accuse him. Satan's the great accuser. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this Joshua, the high priest, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, forgiveness, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, righteousness. Forgiveness and righteousness. And so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Brothers and sisters, when you trust in Jesus for salvation, you don't begin at the starting line when you trust in him. You're taken to the finish line. When you believe in Jesus, you're taken to the finish line, which Jesus has run that race for you. We're talking about forgiveness and righteousness that you can't earn on your own. The second major idea that Paul writes about. So the first is you can't put confidence in the flesh. Secondly, that we have no righteousness of our own, even though we try to to gin up righteousness for ourselves. We're going to go to verse 5 and 6. Backtrack first to verse 4. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So here he's saying, you know, these Judaizers think they have, they have confidence in what they do. I have confidence as well based upon my history. He says, I have more than them. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See here, Paul is naming all, he's, he's putting his resume forth. He's saying, this is what I could claim as my own righteousness. The first 
thing he, he mentions is his birth. His birth. He says, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, a people of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's saying, I was born in the right family, in the right tribe. I was, uh, an, I'm an eighth-dayer, meaning I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is commanded in the Old Testament, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was saying, I could take, I could have this sort of false advantage of my birth if I really wanted to put that forward. And you know, don't some of us, aren't we tempted with saying that? In our own Christian faith, oh, my, my father and my mother, strong believers in the Lord. My grandparents, oh, I have pastors all the way down the line in my family. Even if you have that, it's not going to make you right with God. Even if you come from a long legacy of, of, of God-fearing, Jesus-believing family members, that won't save you. That won't save you. But more than birth, he gives the false advantages of commitment, his zeal. He says, as to zeal, verse 6, a persecutor of the church. A persecutor of the church. Well, before that, though, he says, I'm a Pharisee. So if you remember, Pharisees were experts in the Torah. They were experts in the law. He was an expert in the Bible. He, he probably had it all memorized from a young age. But he went beyond that. See, not all Pharisees went beyond that and were persecutors of the church. He was a Pharisee, but he was also a persecutor of the church. He was trying to wipe out any movement that contradicted God and his word. He went above and beyond. And so you might be zealous as well. You might be zealous and serving the church and teaching Sunday school and serving in the nursery and never missing a Sunday. You know, even pastors need to be wary of this. I, we were um, warned in the first year of seminary to not go into the ministry trying to save yourself, basically what was told us. Don't go into the ministry to try to save yourself, meaning you can't save yourself by your zeal, your commitment to God. And that's, a, that's across the board for every Christian. You can't do it. It's a false advantage of commitment. And so what is the alternative? If it can't be our righteousness, it has to be righteousness from someone else. And so I ask you this morning, where does your confidence come from? If it can't be from your zeal, like if it can't be from your birth, where must it come from? So let's follow his argument after verse 6. Verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he's saying, I can't lean on those things anymore. That is all rubbish to me. It's all loss. You know, friends, uh, believers, but I'm especially speaking to unbelievers. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you don't want to come to the end of your life which none of us know when it will happen. You don't want to come to the end of your life asking the question, was I good enough? Have I done enough? Because the only answer to that question is no. I haven't done enough. But here's the good news. 
Jesus has. Jesus has. Jesus has done everything you couldn't do. And He didn't do anything that you sinfully have done. So the only response you need to give at the end of your life is, I need Jesus. The only response you need to give at the end of your life is the same as the the thief on the cross. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. As we sang earlier, my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Oh God, how I need you. That, That is the cry of the saved. You see, Christianity and the gospel is not about trying your best and hoping for the best when you die. No, it's about knowing for certain that Christ not only did his best, but did everything perfectly in your place. And you and I desperately need his perfect righteousness because we're dead in our sin. You see, here's, here's the, kind of the irony of salvation in the gospel. To be saved, you have to know you're unbelievably unworthy of heaven. To be saved, you have to know you're unbelievably unworthy of heaven. And see, Paul knew this about him himself. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is getting stoned by the crowds, you know, Stephen, the, uh, the, the first deacon of the church, gives this amazingly beautiful, long sermon about all those who persecuted uh, God, and he, and he calls out all the leaders, and they, they throw stones at him and eventually kill him. And as the scene is turning, it says, and everyone laid their cloaks down at the feet of Saul as he approved this execution. You see, he was there. He approved the killing of people who believed in Jesus. He knew that he was unworthy, unfit for heaven. And so anytime we try to add to our resume, anytime we try to add to Jesus' righteousness, it's like what John Calvin says, it's we're, we're diluting the best wine with dirty water when we do that. It has to be a righteousness that depends on faith. Look at, look at where Paul goes in verse 9. I need to be found in him, that is Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, through trusting in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What he's saying is, I need a righteousness outside of myself. The reformers called this an alien righteousness. Alien meaning apart from me, outside of me. That's the kind of righteousness we need. It can't be within us. We can't follow the law to be saved. We have to have one who did it for us. And that leads us to our Third point of Paul's argument that no confidence in the flesh, no righteousness of our own, but there's no substitute for knowing Jesus. It all leads to this idea of knowing Jesus. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. I'm willing to give up everything that I had because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The number one motivation for Paul for living the rest of his, of his life as a believer, to be, to be persecuted, to suffer for the Lord, was because he knew the Lord. He knew Jesus. He knew the one that had saved him. And so what does that mean, to know God, to know him? 
You see, he emphasizes that point. The worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Well, Michael Horton writes that in the covenantal thinking we find in Scripture, there is no such thing as true knowledge without love and obedience. To know God is actually in the Hebrew language uh, to acknowledge God. That is to walk after God in the way that a servant walks behind a king in solemn procession, recognizing his sovereignty. See, knowing someone, knowing God, means obeying and loving and following after. It means wanting to be near him and to be like him. And that's why grace is never an excuse for more sinning. You know, Paul was accused of that, of being this this guy who didn't believe in anything of obedience or anything with the law, and that if he preached the gospel of free grace, people are just going to do whatever they want and sin and sin and sin. That was always the counter to to Paul and his gospel of free grace. But that's never true for someone who knows God, who knows what they've been saved from, who knows that they do not deserve heaven. That is the grace that transforms our lives. See, knowing Jesus changes everything. You know, one of the great ways to summarize the gospel is to say that in Christ, you're fully known and fully loved. Fully known meaning he knows everything about you. Good, bad, ugly. He knows it all. And despite that, he loves you. That's the love of Christ. He knows you and loves you. And one of the ways you can see an analogy of that, the only earthly analogy that really comes close to that is marriage. A husband and wife relationship where you you can be known in ways that no one else will know you on earth. Good, bad, and ugly. And yet, in a good marriage, you can be loved despite the bad, despite the ugly. Known and loved. That's what we get when we, know, when we know Jesus in that way, and he knows us. It's the kind of love that grounds you and secures you. See, when you're in a good marriage with someone who loves you, and I, and I thankfully have this with my wife, it, it gives you so much security, knowing that you are known and loved. It means you can, you can face anything. You can have courage because you have someone who knows you and loves you. And so meeting Jesus in that way will change you forever. It will change you forever. And it, one of the ways it will change you is what he says in verse 10. He says that then I may know him and, and the power of his resurrection and may then share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. See, Paul's saying, I can then endure suffering for Jesus because he suffered for me. You're willing to suffer as Jesus did. And in knowing God, we then see ourselves rightly. One of my favorite parables that Jesus told was in Luke 18. And he told this parable about two men who come to the temple to pray. One is this Pharisee. This Pharisee who uh, believes that you know, he's righteous because of everything he's done, and he likes to look at others with contempt. He likes to look at others and judge them. And then there's this tax collector. So you've got a tax collector and you've got a Pharisee. And so the Pharisee, he says, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. And then he gives his resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
but the tax collector, standing far off, couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his, beat his chest. And he said this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says about that man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, meaning righteous. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus actually told us a follow-up story, a different story right after that. Actually, it wasn't a story. It, just, it, it happened in the course of events. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked the, the children, rebuked the, rebuked the parents for bringing the children. And Jesus said, no, don't do that. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There, do you see the relationship between this tax collector coming to, to God humbly, honestly? And Jesus is saying, just like that tax collector, you need to be like a child if you're coming to me. Knowing your need, knowing your dependence, knowing that, that it's only God that can save you. We're going to sing a hymn right after this sermon that I think is fitting for this very idea. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And in it, I love the line, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. That's what Paul's saying. There's nothing I could do. It's all loss. If I think that's going to earn me a right place in heaven beside the king of kings, it's not going to work. And so what is the answer? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We come empty-handed. We come naked, needing to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, I, I opened this sermon up with this interview, right? This hypothetical interview. But you know, coming face to face with God at the end of your life is way more important, vastly, infinitely more important interview than you'll ever have on earth. How are you going to come to that interview? As you prepare your heart for that interview, remember this that we have a Savior who left his resume behind. Which resume did he leave behind? He left the resume that he had in heaven by becoming obedient even to the point of death. He left it all. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. You see, Jesus became last. He became least. He became lost to save the last and the least and the lost. It's said so beautifully in Hebrews 13 as I close. Jesus suffered outside the, gate, outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He earned what we could never earn, and he saved us if you trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. 
Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Father, would that be our song? The song of our heart. As Paul said, we cannot earn it, but Jesus has done it in our place. If any here do not know that, or are hearing it for the first time, would you save them? By Jesus' righteousness. We thank you. Bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.